So tonight we're going to begin a short series on the cross of Christ. As we uh, look at the cross of Christ, I pray that you'd be blessed by just how much the Lord loves us, because that's really what it is. As we're going to see it illustrates, illustrates God's love to us, but also it speaks to us about what God wants to do in our life, both save us and also sustain us and sanctify us. And so over the next four weeks, we'll look at different aspects of the cross. But let's begin tonight with prayer. So Lord, we ask that you'd speak to us, Lord. We thank you for your word and that it's living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, you want to minister to us through it. And so Lord, our hearts are open before you to, to hear what your spirit would have to say to us, both personally, Lord, and your church corporately. Um, Lord, we just thank you for the cross and Lord, the love that you poured out upon each one of us, Lord, and, and the opportunity just to walk with you. Lord, you're so good to us, and Lord, we pray that that, that would come out by the power of your Spirit, Lord, as we go through your word. And so, Lord, may your Spirit move heart to heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 tonight and also in Philippians chapter 2, and so you can place your fingers there as, as well. We're going to hit a couple different scriptures as we focus on Christ, the substitute for the sinner. Now, I'm thinking about God's love for us. It, it, it made me think about how, um, you know, we all feel special when someone does something or says something that illustrates that they love us, right? We, we, you know, we all know that. When someone does something special for us, we just know that, you know, they went out of their way to do it. When we were in Columbia, you know, the students on the last day we were there, they, they had a surprise party for us. And, you know, they surprised us. You know, they didn't have to do it, but they went out of their way. They got food and soda and all that, and, and they did it for us because, you know, they loved us, and it was real special to us. Husbands and wives know this. When your husband or your wife does something special for you, husbands know you have to do something special for your wife after uh, this study. But, you know, um, you know, as our spouses do something special for us, we know that you know, that they do it because they love us, as they give us that gift or, you know, or they say something thoughtful or they do something kind, and that really illustrates their love. But if we were thinking about God's love for us and his love for the world, how would that be illustrated to us? Now, God has given man illustrations. God has given us things to reveal himself. For example, Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And so creation reveals to all mankind that there's a God and that he's all-powerful, and that he's intelligent. It shouts to all mankind. So God has given man that illustration. But what about love? What demonstrates God's love to us? Now, the Bible gives us the fullest answer to that question, and that is the cross of Christ. Here's a couple passages to illustrate that. First of all, the first mention of the word love in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 22. Now, we all know the story of Genesis 22. It's when God told Abraham to take his son, his only son, whom he loved. That's the first mention of the word love in the Bible. Take your son whom you love and go up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. You know, that was an illustration of the cross of Christ as Isaac, Abraham's only begotten son, carried the, the wood up the mountain. And there he would die on that mount, Mount Moriah, the same mount that Calvary was placed upon. Now, we all know that he didn't die, but God provided a sacrifice and also gave him a promise. And he says, God will provide himself the sacrifice. And so the first mention of love in the Bible is in a context of sacrifice, pointing to Christ's cross. The New Testament gets more specific in declaring God's love for all mankind. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, John 15.13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. 
Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. 1 John 4.9-10, in this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so the list can go on and on and on and on. But for now, it's clear the love of God is demonstrated through the cross of Christ. Now, if you're like me, when you think of the cross of Christ, you automatically think of the amount of physical suffering that Jesus went through. And Jesus did go through a lot of physical suffering. You know, we start seeing images of the movie The Passion, of Jesus being scourged or Jesus carrying his cross up the hill and and they're suffering the brutal Roman crucifixion with all the historical details, you know, the the spikes and the, you know, all the details of it. Just, you know, they're suffering. It really, uh, uh, one of the worst forms of of death that anyone could ever face. But yes, this love, you know, this cross shows us through his physical suffering that Christ loves us, but there's much more to the cross than just physical suffering. Over the next four weeks, we'll focus on that. And really what we're going to focus on is really, for lack of a better words, a spiritual side of the cross. We're going to focus on what Jesus has done for all mankind through the cross. And the way that we're going to approach the cross over these next four weeks is from four different angles. We'll see Christ as the substitute for the sinner. We'll see Christ the sacrifice for sin. We'll see Christ the satisfaction of God's wrath. And we'll see Christ the Savior of all the world. Now, in all in all, if nothing else, my prayer is that we'd be all floored by the love of God that he has for us through the cross. But God, I believe, wants to reveal more to us as we look at the cross. He wants to reveal to us how in-depth his love is for us. So let's begin with our first look at the cross this evening. As we approach the cross tonight, we see Christ died as the substitute for the sinner. Now, as we focus on this aspect of Christ's death, we'll look at three points. Number one, we'll see man's need for a substitute. Second, we'll see Christ is God's final substitute. And third, we'll see the application of Christ's example. So first, let's talk about the um, man's need for a substitute. And that's revealed there in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Now, it's important to note that God did not make the world with sin. You know, nor did man need a substitute when God first created the world. God could not have created sin because God is holy and perfect. Genesis 1.31 says... Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And so when God finished his creation, he looked down there and he said, everything is very good. There was no sin. There was no evil. It was made perfect. Now, if God made all things perfect, where did sin come from? Well, the origin of sin, both in the universe and on the earth, came from the misuse of free will. Free will can be defined as the ability to make an unforced decision between two or more alternatives. And God made the angels and mankind with a free will. And he did that for a good purpose. Here's some reasons why. Free will makes worship and glory possible. If God made robots, it wouldn't be true worship. Jesus tells us in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, that true worship is a response of our heart as we freely respond to God with love. Free will makes moral acts possible. You see, if man didn't have a free will, then you couldn't commend moral acts, nor can you condemn evil acts. Man would just be programmed like that. Also, free will makes love possible and meaningful. Forced love is not love at all, right? It's rape. 
Enforced, or, uh, enforced love is, is not what God made you know, man to have. It's rather God made man to have a meaningful and loving relationship with him, and so he gave all of us a free will. Now, man had a beautiful relationship with God before the fall. Genesis 3.8 shows us that relationship. We're told there in Genesis 3.8 that God in the cool of the day would come down in some visible form and walk and talk with Adam and Eve. That's amazing, as God in some visible form would, would commune with them. They would have a relationship with him. Now, as in all relationships, God's relationship with mankind had boundaries and consequences. God told them what that was in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. God said, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So these were the boundaries that God gave man, but also these boundaries would serve as a test to see if Adam and Eve really loved God. Now, people object to God testing Adam and Eve to see if they really loved him. They say, well, how can God do that? Why did he do that? Well, it's important that we know what we're talking about here. You see, Adam and Eve, like us, or unlike us, had no sin nature, and they had no flesh at that time to wrestle with. They had no natural bent towards evil. And so it was totally based upon their free will on whether they would love God or whether they would disobey God. It was totally upon their own choice on whether they would choose to love God or, or disobey him. And this is exactly what they did. They chose out of their own free will to disobey God. And this is where sin came from. We, we see it in Genesis chapter 3. Lucifer, who fell, and sometime after he fell, came into the garden as a serpent, and there he tempted Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, Satan tempted Eve by placing doubts in her mind. He placed doubts according, you know, about the word of God. He placed doubts about the goodness of God. He placed doubts about the faithfulness of God to follow through in the command that he gave. He says, no, you're not going to surely die if you eat the fruit. Don't, don't believe that. Now, Eve was deceived by the serpent, and she ate of the fruit, and then she gave some to Adam, who willfully disobeyed God's command, and he also ate of the fruit. At that moment that Adam ate of the fruit, sin and corruption affected all of God's creation, specifically mankind. Just as God said when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they died. Now, it's important to understand what death is. A basic definition of death is separation. You see, Adam and Eve, when they, when they ate of the fruit, they didn't fall over dead. No, but they died spiritually, which means they were separated from God. They started dying physically. One day, their body would be separated from their soul and spirit. And unless God intervened, they would die eternally, which means they would be eternally separated from God in punishment. That's what death is, the three forms of death. Now, let's focus on spiritual death here because this shows us why we need a substitute. You see, something happened after Adam and Eve ate that fruit. Something changed within them. And we see that once again in Genesis 3.8. That, that verse, which illustrates the beautiful relationship they had with God, was all of a sudden changed. We see that um, we're told here that God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So notice Adam and Eve are no longer running for God. They're no, you know, they're no longer running to him for love and fellowship. Because of the reality of sin and guilt, they sought to run away from a holy God. Also because of their shame of nakedness, they sought to cover their own nakedness by fig leaves. And this is a perfect illustration of Genesis, um, you know, of, of, of Romans chapter 3, which illustrates Genesis perfectly. Paul says, none seek after God, no, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
We all have sin because we're all born of Adam. Ephesians 2.1 says, And you he made alive who are dead in trespasses and sin. So all mankind, because we're descendants of Adam, have this inherited sin nature from conception. Since we're all of this line, we all inherit this fallen nature. So therefore, man isn't running after God, seeking fellowship. They're hiding from God. They're seeking to cover their own sin by their own works. And this is a perfect example of any religion that tries to come to God apart from Christ. They try to put their works there. They try to work their way to heaven. They try to you know, cover their guilt and their sin by their own efforts. But God says, it's foolishness. It doesn't work. Only his substitute and sacrifice can cover your sin and forgive your sin. So all mankind are born with this sin nature because all mankind are born from the line of Adam. Now, there's only one exception who wasn't born with this sin nature, and that was Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was born of a virgin. And also God in his omnipotence protected Christ from having a sin nature. And so Jesus had no sin nature because he wasn't from the line of Adam. Now, to make matters worse, not only do we have a sin nature from Adam, but we have what's called imputed sin. Imputed sin is described in Romans 5, 12 through 14. Here's what it says. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of, of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. So I, I love Paul's writing. It's like, wow, Paul, what are you talking about here? So here's basically what Paul is saying. In verses 13 and 14, Paul says that it's a fact because all people will die physically one day it's, it's a fact that all people have imputed sin. And so since we're going to die physically one day, it's evidence that we all have imputed sin given to us. Imputed sin means that the penalty of Adam's sin was directly deposited into your account when you were conceived. You know, on our phones we get, ding, oh, you have a direct deposit. You know, or, you know, our bank lets us know. Well, that's what happens when we're conceived. Adam's sin was directly deposited to our account. So we're born with inherited sin nature, that's bad. And also we have imputed sin to us. Now, how does that work? Well, it's in verse 12. All sinned in Adam. Now, evangelicals, they hold one of two views when it talks about imputed sin. Some say because Adam was our representative, we have imputed sin. Others say that just as the writer of Hebrews in chapter 7 says that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek, because he was in the loins of Abraham, even so, since we're from Adam, we all shared in the fall. And so you can pick, pick which one you want there. But either way, on the righteousness scale, we're not doing very good, right? You know, we're not doing real well. Man has fallen in nature. We have imputed sin. But I point this out because to show us that none are perfect, no, not one. God says, be holy for I'm holy, and we're not holy. God says, be perfect, and we're not perfect. Just like Adam and Eve after the fall, we are all naked before a holy God. We're helpless before a holy God. We can't cover up our own sin by our own efforts, by some other religion, but rather we're left open and bare before the Lord. There's only one solution. Man needs God's grace. There's only one solution. God needs to cover man. There's only one solution. We need the substitute to take our sin away from us. And that's exactly what we see in Christ. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. And so this shows us our second point now. Christ is God's final substitute for the sinner. 
You see, in Genesis 3, 8 through 13, we see rather than man running after God, God came into the garden seeking after man. And that's exactly what we see in 1 John 4.10. It says, God loved us first. We love God because he first loved us. You see, God came into the garden looking for Adam and Eve. Adam, Eve, where are you? They were hiding from God. He came seeking after them. In the same way, God came seeking after us through Jesus Christ. He wants a relationship with us. Now, when God found Adam and Eve hiding, he didn't wink at their sin. He didn't say, hey, guys, it's okay. It's okay. No, rather, he declared to them the consequences of their sin. He declared judgment on the serpent, on Satan, on mankind, and on women. God did not stop with his judgment, though. He continued on, and he gave them, first of all, a temporary provision by which man could have a relationship with him. That's the first thing he did. He says, okay, let's, let's deal with this now so I can cover your nakedness so we can be back in fellowship once again. And we see that there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. It says, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. You see, man cannot cover their nakedness by their own efforts and works. God had to cover their nakedness. And the way that God did that was by killing an innocent animal in their place. This became the pattern throughout the entire Old Testament for how man would come into the presence of God. We're going to look at more next week as we talk about sacrifices and Jesus being the Lamb of God. But God commended Abel's sacrifice. Why? Because he brought a lamb. He didn't commend Cain's sacrifice because he brought the fruit of the ground because there was a pattern there, a lamb for a man. In, in the Passover, it would be a lamb for a household. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, it would be a sacrifice for the nation. And then finally, it would point towards the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Man couldn't cover his own nakedness by his own works. God had to kill an innocent substitute and cover them with this skin. Now, we see a third thing. We also see a promise of a final substitute for man's sin in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And here's what God said to Satan. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Notice the word his is capitalized. You see, God here gave a promise. He said, from the seed of the woman, we'll know later on that that means from a virgin, one would come, the Messiah, who would defeat sin and defeat Satan. So all the way back in the Garden of Eden, right after mankind fell, God promised that he would send a final substitute to take away the sins of the world and clothe man with his robes of righteousness. And that's what we see throughout the entire Old Testament. This promise, and it would get more and more specific as God would add more and more promises to the fact that he would send a final substitute, a final sacrifice to take man's sin. Isaiah 53 46 says this, surely he was born, or surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That was written hundreds of years, thousands of years you know, before Jesus came. You know, some, some you know, thousand years or so you know, before Jesus came to the earth. And yet, 
you know, God fulfilled it perfectly through Jesus Christ, his final sacrifice. And so all these scriptures were pointing to Jesus, the final lamb of God. And that's what John said when Jesus came on the scene. He could announce him in any other way. He could say, hey, guys, the Messiah is here. Here he is. Or he could have said, the, you know, the lion of the, king of, uh, lion of the tribe of Judah. He could have said, the king of kings and lord of lords. But when Jesus came on the scene at his baptism, John said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Jesus was the Lamb of God. He is the only way to heaven because he's the only person who could be the Lamb of God. And the reason that's so is because Jesus is the only person who is both God and man. You see, Jesus had to be man because the wages of man's sin is death. You see, God could atone for a time by an animal sacrifice, but man must pay for his sin because the wages of man's sin is death. And the payment that man owes for his sin is eternal death. This is what Charles Ryrie says. Man could atone for his sins personally only if he could suffer eternally the penalty that sin occurred. Man, of course, could never do this. So in his love and compassion, God stepped into a hopeless situation and provided a vicar in Jesus Christ who, who would provide an eternal satisfaction for sin. And so man must suffer for their sin because the wages of sin is death, but God sent a viker, which is Latin for a substitute. He sent this, his son in order to die in our place, to take our place for us. Now, Jesus also had to be God because in order to satisfy a holy and a perfect God, he also had to be perfect, and there's none perfect but God. So Jesus was that perfect God-man, and that's what Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so here was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Paul says he was equal with God but he didn't consider it robbery. But yet he humbled himself. He was willing to leave his throne in heaven and come to this earth, take up a human body through the virgin birth and live a life of a humble servant. It's amazing. He grew up as any normal man would. He lived a life surrendered to the Father's will. He surrendered his, you know, the independent use of his attributes to the Father's will, being led by the Father and, and led by the Spirit. Finally, Jesus' love and humility is demonstrated in the fact that he was willing to follow the Father's will to the point of death, even the death on the cross. As I said in our introduction, the cross was an inhumane way to die. It was a criminal's death. The Romans wouldn't even crucify their own citizens. But yet Jesus was willing to go to the cross for us. He suffered horribly for us. But not only did he suffer for us physically, Jesus would take our sins for us spiritually. The writers of the New Testament show us this fact in that when they talk about Jesus' death for mankind, they use two Greek words. And those Greek words are, first of all, anti, and that means for or instead of, and the Greek word hooper, which means it can mean, you know, for the benefit of, but also is used on behalf of. And so in other words, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die merely to help us. He didn't die just merely to benefit us, but he died instead of us. Jesus died on behalf of us. And so when Jesus died, he took the punishment for our sins. He took the wrath that we deserved. He died the death that each one of us were supposed to die, separated from God. 
but he took that. He is willing to be punished for us and for our sins. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we may become the righteousness of God in him. Remember that word imputed? Adam's sin was imputed to us. Well, something else happened too. God imputed our sin to Jesus on the cross. You see, Adam's sin was given to us, but when Jesus died on the cross, God took the man's sin and deposited it to Jesus. And there he was judged for us. He took our punishment. He didn't just die and say, oh, I'll help you guys out. Maybe you guys can live a healthy and wealthy and blessed life. He says, no, I'm dying instead of you. I'm dying in the place of you. And I'm going to take your punishment, God's wrath that you deserve. I'm taking it for you. And God took the sin of the world and put it on Jesus. And the reason why he did that is so because, you know, when we put our faith in Christ, God then imputes Christ's righteousness to us. So there's three imputations in the Bible. Adam's sin to us at conception, our sin to Jesus on the cross, and then by faith, God then takes Christ's righteousness and gives it to us. His righteousness are like robes of righteousness. You see, Adam and Eve, they were naked before God. God said, can't cover it with your own works. You need a substitute. Something needs to die for you. You need to be covered with these, you know, with these skins. Even so, as we stand before God as sinners, God says, can't do it by your own works. Something needs to die for you, and it's Jesus Christ. And as you put your faith in Jesus, you'll receive his righteousness like robes. And when God looks at you, he'll look at you as, just as, you know, as if you never sinned. You're justified, just as if you've never sinned. It's an amazing gift. And it gets even better as we talk more about um, the cross. And so for now, I just want us to know that Christ died as a substitute. Theologians call it the vicarious atonement, means that he took our place. He was a substitution for us. Now, let's talk about our last um, example. Let's talk about how we apply this to our life. How do, we apply, you know, how do we apply this great example for us, this love that went out of his way for us? Well, we you know, respond just as we should when someone blesses us. Remember our introduction, we talked about how it blesses us when someone goes out of their way to love us. And I think Jesus really went out of his way to love us. I mean, you know, as our bridegroom, Jesus really went out of his way to give us, you know, his love for us. How should we respond? Well, there's two ways that, that we can look at this. First of all, we need a proper response. Think about our proper response when someone blesses us. Now, yes, we're, we, you know, we're to be humble and we're to be saying, hey, hey, praise the Lord, thank you, thank you. But there is a proper response that we should have. For example, you know, we should have gratitude and joy and thankfulness. If something doesn't bless us, I don't know about you, but me, just kind of toss it aside. Well, yeah, cool, thanks. And you just kind of go on your way about it. But if something really blesses you, man, it really gets your attention, right? It really it makes you respond in joy and gratitude and thanksgiving. Well, in the same way for the cross, we should respond with joy, with thanksgiving, with worship, with obedience to God's word. We shouldn't just say, oh, yeah, well, that's cool. Yeah, well, that's great. Thanks. And just kind of toss it aside, kind of go on our way. No, we should have a proper response to what Jesus has done for us. Second, in thinking about the cross, which Paul describes as God's indescribable gift, we must apply it. We must use it and apply it. A gift that is not important is often useless. And it's useless, and so you don't take it and apply it. And it's like the Christmas sweater. You're like, oh, thanks. Wow, that's cool. But you don't wear it, you know? You just kind of stick it in a drawer somewhere. 
away. Christ's gift should not be like that for us. We didn't just say, wow, Lord, thanks for that great gift. I'm just going to kind of set it aside now and kind of go on my way. No, it's like useless apps, you know, on our iPhones. You know, we kind of have them there, but they're just kind of, you know, stuck away. It's, it's knowledge without application. That's what they are, knowledge without application. But when we understand God's gift for us, the fact that he loved us so much that he went out of his way to bless us, to give us this gift, it should really stir us. And we should use it. We should apply it. We should preach the gospel, the good news, to all mankind. We shouldn't keep this gift contained for just us. We should go. It's the gift that keeps on giving, right, as we go around and share it with others. Also, we must use it in the sense that we must show love for others. I read a number of verses in the beginning of the study that talked about God's love for us. But majority of these verses have another side to them. It talks about our love for man. Listen to some of them. John 15, 13, we talked about Jesus' love for us. No greater love than this, that a man will lay down his life for his friends. But the verse before that, Jesus said this, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he goes on and says, but no greater love than this, that a man will lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says, I love you guys, now you're to love others. 1 John 3, 16, Christ loved us by laying down his life for us. We're like, wow, that's awesome. Well, we need to keep reading that verse on to verse 17. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Jesus says, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might, and love your brother as yourself. As we understand the love of God and the gift that the Lord has given us, it can't be contained. It must be given out. The gospel must be preached, but also we must show this love to others because it's a natural response to God blessing us with this gift. Also, 1 John 4, 9 through 10, I read that. Talked about God sending Christ for us, showing us God's love. You know, the fact that Jesus died for us, it shows us his love. But don't miss verse 11, the verse right after that. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's the natural response. And so Jesus died as a substitute. He went out of his way to bless us, to love us. Now we have that response to go out of our way for him. Well, in what way? Well, I think a better word would be to move our will to follow his will. To lay down our life as Jesus has followed, not my will, but your will be done. Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you. I'm going to respond in worship to you because you're good, because you're worthy of it. Lord, I'm going to preach the gospel because I know it's blessed me and, and you know, just all you've done for me. I'm going to share with this person. Lord, this person's hard to love, but because you have loved me so much, I'm going to love this person. It's our natural response. Amen?